Right, lads, uh, this podcast has been absolutely fantastic. The Half and Half oh. podcast. I, I, I don't know what to tell you, lad. It's been, it's been amazing. <laughs> Just from, from the start to finish. Yeah, it's been incredible. Thank you. How are you guys? <laughs> Doing well. Welcome. A, a special guest on the pod today, all the way from London, UK. That's correct. Richard yep. Horton flew in just for the pod. <laughs> some some seven years ago. I know. I, I just couldn't miss and my he's opportunity. He's been waiting to get on ever since. Yeah, I couldn't couldn't miss the opportunity to get on the Half and Half podcast. Yeah, excellent. We're excited to talk with Rich today. Got some good stuff coming up in the serious half, but. For now, how's the week been, fellas? Yeah, how, how was your weekend in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina? Weekend in Raleigh was good. I um, excited to ask Rich about some stag hunting that he's been doing recently because this weekend I spotted for a friend up there and shot two deer, two doe. Uh, didn't see any bucks. You shot oh, them? Nice. Or you just, I you, did not. You I spotted. Them out. I, I said, point, hey, here, here it is. I sat up there with him, you know, and we had um, had a lot. There was no one around us. We had a really good spot with. A pond behind us, and uh, we were kind of on the top of a hill that went slightly downward both ways. And um, he had some corn out that he placed uh, a while ago. It was about 20 yards away and had a pretty clear shot. Uh, and we got out there really early. Um, right when we got into the tree, there were two stands we sat at right next to each other. And you could hear two deer eating the corn, but you couldn't see him. It was still too dark. About 20 minutes later... Uh, lightened up i don't know if it was those same two deer but two deer came up from behind us went straight to the corn pile and uh got one there and clean shot perfect shot and um, about five minutes later um we didn't go get it right away because there have been he's got a trail cam and there have been two or three bucks in the area as well as plethora of doe so five ten minutes later the same doe that didn't get shot the first time came back to the corn, just wanted some corn, and was about 10, 12 yards away. I mean, showing its broadside, and um, Ellis, again, just perfect shot. Dude, I don't know if you hear, like, uh, like have you ever heard an arrow hit a deer? Oh, it's arrow. Not an arrow, but, arrow. but definitely a, no, a bullet. Is it, just a, is wow. it like a thunk? No. Like well, it's a 70-pound draw, so... It, it which is extremely it's heavy it's just all you hear is and then you hear and then just the bones breaking is a 70 pound draw is that the equivalent to if you were in the gym and you did a one arm row were racked up with 70 pounds is mm. that what it feels like yeah. that's what i assumed maybe it would um you'd think it would be easier to draw at the beginning and then maybe reach the full 70 pounds at the back end of it it's it's kind of so I've I've pulled one before. To me, I, I felt like it was a little harder in oh, to get at the at first, hmm. and then kind of in the middle. But on the back end of it, it sets in. So so it's so you're not like straining at the end. It gets to a point where it's really easy to hold once you get past a certain point, and then you're able to hold it for a little bit. 
But um, no, killed two. But it, it's so. Did this deer that came back? Did it see its its fallen comrade? It did, and I, I asked. I asked my buddy. I was like, "Is the deer just dumb?" And he goes, "Well, does aren't as conscious of what's going on as bucks are." Said, "Really, they they're not thinking about it too much. They just want some corn." It's not in, corn not in the rut, there. Do what? Not in the rut. Not during mating right. period. Right. Because yeah. then the bucks will be preoccupied with other things. Right. Oh, interesting. Yeah. And when whenever he shot the second doe. We waited about 10 to 15 minutes to go down to get the two because when he shot the second doe, it was looking off into the distance where bucks have been coming from, according to his trail cam. And it was looking off into the distance. So he was wondering, he was like, let's not go down. I think it may be looking for a buck that's on its way. And we didn't see any that day come. Um, So field dressed the two doe. And then today he sent me a video of his trail cam and the, there's another buck. So there's three or four in the area now. We just didn't see it at the time we were out there early in the morning, but they're lurking. So he's pretty pumped. So how, how many, when, when did you get finished then? So what time did you get out there? And it sounds like you got two of them right at sunrise. Yeah, we got out there at about, we got out of my truck at about 540, walked to the stand, got up in the tree at about six or five till six still very dark couldn't see anything and he's smart you know like deer can hear everything so he days before he raked a path through the leaves from where we parked to the tree so we didn't step on any leaves coming in like the night before he has a shampoo that takes all the scent off of you so deers because deers can smell incredibly like it's a shampoo it's a body wash you just completely scrub your body and, and you had to use that too? Yeah, yeah. Wow, some yeah. serious preparation. See, serious, yeah. So it was clean, you know, and uh, had has this fake deer urine that you kind of spray on your shoes because it draws it draws mm. bucks in. Um, so you you were just a spotter for this whole exercise? Yeah, I yeah. Do you I, have to have a license, I'm assuming, to if if you were to use you, the bow. You do have to have a hunting license, and you have to have a bow. I don't have a bow, so you know he had one and. I told him that I was interested in, you know, going with him and he had a second deer stand, a one that he travels with that you can, it's a two piece and you can like shimmy up a tree with it. It's, it's hard to, to explain how, but, um, wait, he, he the deer stands aren't already there. He brings, no, he did. He had one, he has one drilled in Okay. a permanent one for him to sit on. And then like the day before he went and put the second one in for me. Yeah. Okay. Does he have multiple stands across? Just one the right now. Just one. Yeah. It's it's public land. It's not private land. Okay. So how then would you... I suppose you can't really do anything about it except change the position of the stand. But what about if the wind direction changes? You know, like how do you factor that in if, you're, if you can't move? You're stationary. You're sort of... You know, you're a slave to... To, uh, to the where wind if it changes right and other things that could happen i i don't know i didn't i didn't <clears throat> ask him that but from where we were there wasn't a lot of woods in between us and this really big pond so really and like we weren't that far from the edge of the tree line so we were in this little call it a call it a, almost like a canal from in the woods from one big spot of the woods to another. So really 
I, I don't know how much he really factored in because deer were coming from one side or the other. They weren't coming from behind us or in front of us. So it's kind of limited where they were coming. So I don't I don't know how we played that really. Okay. So you, you hunt also? Do you I now? do, yeah. Mm-hmm. How often do you get out and do that? Just a little bit. Um, growing up with school, you know, I never really had a lot of chances to get out that much, but sorry. Um, and we, so we hunt different things differently. So um, we have shotguns. We'll go shooting birds. So mainly pheasant and partridge, um, both English and French partridge. Um, and, uh, we do that mostly down South England and, and North England. Um, uh, but that will be driven game. So if you imagine you have a pen in the woods, which is just a fenced area in the woods where you place young pheasants and partridge called poults and they grow up there for I don't know, a year, half a year, whatever. Um, and that's where they feel the most safe. So it's got tree cover, they can perch on branches, etc. And then in a field, you will have a cover crop, which is full of maize, corn, various different grasses that you seed down. It's a mixed seed that you put down. And that's where you feed the birds, the pheasant partridge. And so typically you will set those things up to the terrain so you ideally you'd have the cover crop up high and you'd have the pen down low and then in between those two things you would set your line of guns so you typically you'd have a peg in the ground or you'd you'd have someone who would just place you as a gun and then you'd have a set of beaters which basically just men and women with sticks and dogs under control who walk through the cover crop and stir up the birds and they will then fly up over you, over the line of guns, back to their pen in the woods where they feel safe, you know, so that's basically, and then you shoot them as they come over you. And the best shoots in the world have the most drastic terrain where you will, you know, be in a field and you'll be looking up at, you know, I don't know, a hundred meter tall pine trees just towering above you. And these birds will be flying so fast with the wind sometimes and they'll be you know just turning in the air and diving down and it's really difficult sometimes to shoot these birds um yeah and it's a lot of fun i mean adrenaline is insane you know you have to be a very good shot depending on where you're shooting um you can shoot commercially you know there are a lot of shoots around the country that um operate you know, the groups paid to shoot there, whatever. We have a shoot at home down south, which is not a commercial shoot. We run the shoot for friends. It's very small scale. The terrain isn't isn't great. We have sort of a couple drives that are, you know, you can get some some pretty high birds flying over you. But um, yeah, so that's that's sort of down south shooting. And then what I was just doing this past October for a week was going to Scotland and we were stalking. So... Um, what Ryan just described was, I don't know, sort of typical American deer hunting, uh, Mm. where you set up in a blind, you know, you, you sort of wear some, you know, you wear some obnoxiously bright colored (laughs) construction site (laughs) uniform or whatever, you know, I'm just kidding. Um, 
but yeah, so you you set up in a blind and you wait for the deer to come to you and you shoot them with a bow and arrow or something. But up in Scotland, we we stalk, which means there's no blind, there's no hide or stand, and there are no trees really because you're up in the Highlands of Scotland. So you dress up in sort of we have a tweed that we made which matches the color of the grass and the bracken and everything and the heather um and so you go up on the hill and you use the terrain to your advantage so basically the idea is to stay in what we call dead ground um if you can imagine this room we're in right now everything you can see within this room is within your field of vision uh let's say there was a deer just inside the doorway over there and it was out of your vision that deer would be in dead ground and you would be in dead ground to that deer because you're not in line of sight with each other and so you can use the undulations and topography of the hill to keep you out of sight from the deer and in dead ground and that means that whenever you shift above a little hill or a rise or you come around the corner you're exposing yourself to a new line of sight to deer that could be further away from you that you haven't seen yet and obviously anything that's in your line of sight you're in their line of sight too um so anytime you're approaching new ground you have to move very slowly sometimes crawling a lot of the time crawling depending on where you are um and you're beholden to the wind you know we stalk on an island off the west coast of scotland on the coast so sometimes there's a lot of wind it can be quite strong um yeah it's just very difficult sometimes it takes hours you know usually we'll try and get up on the hill about 9 a.m and then we'll try and come down take a last shot no later than 3 4 p.m because the last thing you want to do is find yourself up on the hill in the dot in the dark having to growlic this thing and then find it and get off the hill and whatnot um so yeah it's it's really cool it was my first time actually going um uh stalking in the rutting season so where we're stalking um stags bucks male deer um and it was wild like you drive to the house and straight away you hear deer roaring it's like it's crazy i mean yeah roaring like Like there's just a ton of them (laughs) so it the 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 stalking hunting you're doing there is a bit of a population control is yeah it so it's not it's not trophy hunting we're not going up there to try and pick off the best deer on the hill we're actually trying to do the opposite so it's population control because there are no natural predators for the deer on the island you know fox is probably the largest sort of carnivorous animal on the island um and obviously humans but um yeah so we try and take off the male deer on the hill that have the worst genetics so typically what that means is that antlers will be misshapen in some way or underdeveloped in, in a way. If you imagine if you imagine deer, elk, moose, whatever, all these antlers, they have multiple branches of the antlers coming off on each side. And that means that when deer go in to lock heads, whenever they, you know, sort of charge against each other, the antlers lock together, you know. But imagine if one deer had one or both antlers that had no branches on it. It was just like two spears those antlers would drive right through the other stag's antlers and pierce. You know, it's really dangerous. So we call those deer switches, and you want to get those off the hill. You also want to get any deer with other sort of mal-shaped antlers and diseases and whatnot, and also any deer that are old and going back. 
um, because they're, you know, they're not really doing anything. Um, so yeah, that's typically what we aim for. Um, we, you go for the weak ones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we shot six deer yeah. while I was there over Give from it like 20, 40 years. And that hill yeah. is just going to be full of the most <laughs> glorious looking stags. Beasts. Yeah. Beasts up there. Absolute beasts. If Richie Horton has anything to say about it. At least. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I shot myself an eight pointer, which was nice, but it was, a. Uh, you know, I don't know, it was like six years old, so it wasn't going anywhere. You know, its antlers weren't going to get any any bigger, any more impressive. So, what, What's the lifespan like for a um, stag? I, I want to say it's kind of similar to a dog. I don't know, know like 13, 15, like yeah, something, something like that. Um, some can obviously live older than that. Um, Wait, so when you're stalking and you... But I'm not sure on that. I might, I might be wrong. If you're stalking and like you... You know, you, you, I guess you're, you don't have a line of sight and then you finally get, you know, you, you see some stags or whatever in the distance, like do you immediately like hide back and you're like, okay, like now I got to plan my attack or, mm. or do you sometimes yeah, try to get closer or like, how do, how do you? Absolutely. Yeah. So, so if you see a, a group of deer immediately, you want to, yeah, sort of stay, stay still. If, if you've unluckily stumbled upon them and they see you and you see them, you just stay still exactly still because deer um uh deer respond well to movement um uh their smell is their best sense by far and then they're hearing then their eyes last but they can see movement especially if you're on the skyline you know your silhouette um but yeah so typically what you want to do is you want to get yourself in a position out of sight out of smell where you can spy the deer get your binoculars on the deer to see if they are shootable, they're what you're looking for. And then if they are, then you have a look at the terrain in front of you to see how you can approach. And the idea is you want to get generally to within 150 yards of a deer before you shoot it. But you can obviously, if you're a good shot and you feel comfortable and you find yourself in a good shooting position, you can shoot anything up to maybe you know 250 300 yards but i mean that's not How really, close were you not really advisable. With your stag? i was really close my stalk was bizarre i mean it was so quick it probably took me about 30 minutes since no starting way. from the truck really? to yeah we got out the truck walked up the argo cat um track and within within about 10 15 minutes of walking i looked down to my left uh, down into one of the shelves um, before the hill sort of drops off down towards the house and I see a pair of antlers peeking up above a hill mm -hmm. and I sort of say god dad look down left um there's a deer there's a deer right there and um quietly obviously and sort of we suddenly okay we crouch down and then we take a moment to spy it uh it, it gets up and moves and then dad and I crawl down from the track down to the edge of kind of a hill and we get in position, take the rifle out, load it, get in position, get it in the sight. Um, and you, the deer was presenting itself brilliantly, side on to us. Hmm. Um, and I just took the shot. And I mean, just all happened within the space of 20, 25 minutes. You didn't have the rifle ready to go when you started out? Or it was just so early on that you weren't, no, you didn't no, think you'd need it ready? Well, so you have the rifle in the case, okay. in the sort of sling you put over your shoulder. Okay. You, you have, you know, the bullets will be in the gun okay but it won't be cocked uh, you know the yeah, same, yeah, yeah. you know because you you don't want it to go off inadvertently so you have to take the rifle out of the case then you have to you know cock it you know put the book get the bullet in the chamber mm -hmm. get it all situated get the stand out 
are down. Um, and yeah, just get in position to shoot. And did, uh, did you get to shoot it because you saw it? Or how did you guys determine who was no, going to shoot? No, so before you go up on the hill, you will determine who is the stalker, which is the person who's leading the party. They're the one first who are best um, able to read the ground and understand what's going on and how to stalk. Mm. So usually my dad or my mother, or um, we have someone who manages the estate as well. Um, he's a very good stalker. Uh, and then you will assign, before you leave, you will assign like a first primary shooter, a second shooter, uh, third if you want to. So um, that person, the first one, will be the one to shoot whatever first deer you stalk in on. And then the second will get the second. It goes on and on. Um, and usually when you go on these trips, you're there for a week or, or more at a time. So you'll have opportunities, depending on the weather, to get out there and 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 shoot a deer um if you'd like to so um yeah so why do you keep the gun in the sling is it because you're you're doing so much moving and, and yeah all that so there to it that you want it to be protected yeah there are multiple things uh it's protected within the case from the weather from getting wet from getting knocked it's quite easy if you fall over with the gun or if you knock the gun you could disturb the sight so when you go to shoot a deer you think you're pointing at the deer, but because mm. the sight's been knocked, you're actually not, and so you miss it or you wound it. Um, it's also just easier to carry that way because you can put it over your shoulder. Um, yeah, there are, there are multiple reasons. There's another pocket within the case to hold additional ammunition. Um, uh, yeah. So. And, th- and then did you say when you, you shot it, you, you, you don't like process it and stuff, right? Or do you? Yeah, so you do a bit of both oh, okay. while you're on the hill and while you're off. So... When I shot my deer, unfortunately, the deer was standing right on the edge of a drop-off down to another ledge. Oh, no. So when I shot my deer, it rolled down the side of that drop-off onto (laughs) the ledge below. And that lower ledge is inaccessible by the Argo Cat, which is the machine we use to to take up on the hill to gather the deer. It's like a little tank with eight wheels. It operates like a tank. You know, you have two separate things. Um, Like one side of the wheels will go forward at at one time and whatever. So you, but it's a machine. It can get through any terrain. Like we have lots of bog up there that's really difficult to get through anyway. So that ledge was inaccessible. It's just too steep. So it couldn't get down there. So what we had to do was we had to, first of all, you growlick the deer or gut the deer immediately on the hill as soon as you Mm -hmm. can because you want to get the intestines and all the you know pee and poo and grossness and bile that's within the stomach and intestines and whatnot you get that out as soon as you can and you do it in a way to where all of that stuff is contained within the gut and it doesn't spill out into the cavity the stomach cavity or the chest cavity of the deer because that has a chance of ruining the meat um so you take that all out you leave it on the hill all the birds will come and eat it and then you take the deer off the hill. In my case, we had to tie a rope to the head of the deer, drag it up this ledge, and then oh. put it on the Argo Cat. Then <laughs> take the Argo Cat to the truck, put the deer on the truck. Then you drive the deer down to the house or wherever your your deer larder is where you can process the deer. We've just built a new one, which is lovely. It works really, really well. Um, and so what you do then is you cut off the head first and foremost. And then you cut off the legs, sort of like from the knee joint down. And then you just take out all all the rest of it. We take out all the internal organs. Uh, we keep the um, the private parts, the, the sort of willy and balls, because uh, the 
Asi- <laughs> the Asians in particular to grinding that up into a powder because they believe it gives them fertility. So That's incredible. Um, yeah. We'll sell that to them. And then stags, the meat is a lot gamier. It's really gamey. I mean, venison as it is, is pretty gamey, but um, stags in a rut is very gamey. And Eastern Europeans love gamey meat. So we'll sell that all off to Eastern Europeans. And mm. the meat we keep and we eat as a family are from, uh, from uh, female deers. So... Why is um, that? Is it more tender? It, yeah, it's just less gamey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and it's tender. Yeah, and venison is delicious. It's how much? Really how much meat you think you got out of that? Or did you sell? From, I have no from idea. That stag? But that stag weighed probably similar to my weight, to be honest. <sighs> two twenty, two thirty pounds. Um, I was surprised. I thought it was going to weigh less. Wow. So when we wait, so what you do is you, you weigh it when you get back down there, and obviously all the guts are out of the animal. Right. So it'll weigh, and when we weighed it down there, it was two hundred and two pounds i believe so mm. i imagine with the guts probably would have about 215 maybe 220 right. um and then you, you weigh it again after you've taken the head off the lower part of the legs off and also all the internal organs and mm-hmm. stuff and then you'll have those two weights um to look at um so and you'll also age the deer based on its teeth you can tell its age by its teeth and mm. just kind of by looking at it its size and whatnot all these other things but um yeah so do um so do do stags shed their antlers every year? Kind of like I know deer here shed their antlers every winter and then they regrow I, them. I don't think they shed them like they come off entirely. I may be wrong, but I know they do shed them in a sense, mm-hmm. almost like I don't know sheep shedding their wool. They they have like it's called like velvet, I think. When yeah, the, when the antlers yeah. are in velvet. Um, I I really don't know that I, I can't I can't be sure, but I don't think mm. they come off entirely. No. Okay. Um, okay. Dang boys, when you go on a hunting trip, I mean, you, you, you haven't gone, right? I I have never been a hunter. I might enjoy the spotting. It's, I, it's fun. Do you think Do you think you would want I, I Do you think you would want to kill an animal? Don't. I yeah. I don't know that I would. Um, I had several experiences when I was younger. I'd always go. I loved BB guns, right? Loved pellet guns, and I would always go kind of stalking if you will around my backyard <laughs> for for small birds and finally i i see what it you know what richie this sounds like a very similar situation to what you had <laughs> I, I, i'm with my buddy he has his bb gun too we're just kind of stomping through the backyard we see this little bird right and we freeze you know and make sure we don't move and startle it take aim pull the trigger boom you know feathers everywhere bird's dead you kill the bird with a BB gun pellet. Uh, I think it was a pellet gun, so it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't a BB okay. gun. How could you? I was gonna say. <laughs> Did small, this have an impact bird. on you? A song uh, bird. You know what, guys? I didn't like it. I didn't like mm. it. I felt really bad about the bird. Was it because you? Well, you intended to kill, but like, I I intended to, but also those things aren't very accurate shots. So I I kind of wasn't <laughs> expecting that I would actually hit it. And then when I did, like, it was really fun to shoot at it, you know? So it was an intentional I do it, accidental I would do it with rabbits and stuff kill. sometimes because I knew I yeah. would just, they were too fast. I would never hit them. Yeah. Um, and then so when I actually did hit it, I, I did feel pretty bad about Maybe it. Maybe it was just the, the I don't shock, know if I have the, hard the surprise man, you know, surprise man of killing it, the guy, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if I have the heart for it. The, the spotting sounds okay. I could see it being really interesting. I would enjoy, I think, everything up until the deer actually dies. Yeah, well, I mean, so we went up. It was a family trip. My whole family went up. And there were members of my family who didn't really fancy shooting a deer. But the place we were at is, is so beautiful that the scenery is incredible. And it's just lovely to be out, you know, in the wild. 
And so they would they would come up with us on our stalks and, you know, sort of walk with us and go through everything. And then obviously they would hang back, you know, when you went in for the final approach to, to set up to shoot the deer. But, um, yeah, it's just beautiful to be out there, you know. Um, yeah, but... Um, obviously I'll be honest. No, shooting isn't for everyone. There's no pressure to do I, it. You I, know, d- I do think if you're going to eat the animal afterwards, it, it kind yeah. of almost connects you with nature and you get a yeah. little bit of that primal. The primal instinct is I do want to experience it that. Like I, I'm kind of with you. Like I, I feel like it would be a lot, it'd be hard for me, like for sure to do it. But I think like I do want to learn the process and just like so that is very much historically like what we've done as Have you ever shot and, anything then, Alex? No, I haven't either. Yeah. yeah. It just what, my buddies in paintball. That's all. <laughs> what What you just said though about the primal aspect of it is so true. Like I, I didn't kill it, but after we field dressed it, gutted the two deer, threw them in the truck, took them back to the house. He instead of taking them to like a processing yeah. facility, he just processed it himself. Wow. His dad did it growing up. He he's watched some videos on it. He's taught himself, and he did it. You know he cleaned the, the shoulders and the thighs, hung them up. He has a certain fridge just for hunting, ties them up between the Achilles, hung them up, um, you know, got the back strap off and all the, all the neck meat and stuff that he wanted to grind up, put it in a bag, washed it. And then we did the whole process. He took that inside we washed everything. He cut it up and we vacuum sealed it, you know, dated it, threw it in the freezer. So it was like wow. from, from A to Z, we did it all that morning. That's the best. I, I, I do feel like it's, it's skills that you should, acquire yeah you know regardless of if you like it or not i think it's something that you should do the chances of you ever finding yourself in a situation where you have to you know hunt hunt to survive yeah. obviously yeah, yeah i mean low, but i i mean i think it's a it's a good skill yeah i was really keen i was really keen to go through the whole process from start to finish so you know going up on the hill going through a whole stalk taking the shot Gralicking the beast on the hill like I wanted to do it. It was great. I You know sort of had to get you have to get over your fears and squeamishness of getting your hands in guts and everything um, Was that your then, first time? Uh, like this most recent time or well, so yeah the so last December almost a year ago okay. now I went up with my dad for a couple of days and we did some hind stalking. Okay, a uh, hind is a, what we call a female deer um, and so I shot two deer there but this was my first stag, my first mm. male deer. So I've been, I've shot three now. Um, but yeah, so I wanted to be involved with the whole process all the way through from shooting it to, you know, sort of um, butchering it properly in the larder at the end, getting it ready to ship off to the game dealer. Uh, we would, I think if, if we had the proper licenses and, you know, maybe we were going to keep the animal for ourselves, we would, we might go through the whole process of, of filleting it and, you know, butchering it down to the individual cuts of meat you want to store in your own freezer. But I think because we intended to sell that, you can't, right. you can't, you have, you can only get it to a certain point because then they won't accept it. Right. Because um, yeah. they have to be the ones to process it. Um, they're the people, they're the game dealers with the right certifications and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah. So. Well, Dom, Dom, I could see you being a good hunter. I could just see it. Oh. The more I think about it, the more I think it just kind of sounds soft that I don't want to. I mean, I, 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 I don't think it's ever something that I'd really want to do just purely for game. Like the, the first scenario you talked about where you kind of raise the birds to have their safe space and then you... Mm. Yeah, it's it's truly for sport, right? And yeah, you know, well, you, but you I almost, mean, you almost challenge yourself by making the terrain more difficult. It's 
it, when you were explaining that, I'm like, wow, that kind of sounds like you know what you do with golf. You know, you mm. you, you make the course harder to play in a little bit because right. it's for sport. You're, yeah, you're smiling. I don't know if you'd agree with that or not. Well, yeah, but I mean, we also you know like the deer, we also take all the birds and we we offer them to people at the shoot who'd like to take them home themselves to cook them and the rest we sell to the game dealer as well so everything is you know everything yeah. is processed I, I get it it still gets used um, it does feel a little bit manufactured to me um, to to a sense though mm. i just think we're, that unless you're truly a vegetarian or you know a vegan or you know someone who has made a commitment to not eating meat you are participating in the act of, you know, killing animals to, right. to nourish yourself. And, you know, if you say like, oh, I could never, uh, you know, I, I never want to be a, hunt, cause, you know, a hunter because that's, you know, terrible what they're doing to the animals. It's you're just shielding yourself from the ugly truth of what you do every day when you eat meat. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, and that's even the way that meat gets produced is a, a much sadder story than. Yeah. But I mean, I think there are, that's produced from there hunting. are good ways to hunt and there are bad ways to hunt there are sustainable ways to hunt and non-sustainable ways to hunt i do not approve of trophy hunting endangered species for example or poaching or anything of that nature i think that's i have it appeals to me absolutely not no way whatsoever it is appealing to me going to africa to shoot some, you know, endangered rhino or something, you know, I, I do not want to do that at all. Um, but there are other ways of hunting that are more sustainable, like in Scotland, where what you're doing is actually population control. You know, you are keeping the population within a sustainable number for the habitat in which they're, which they, you know, they live. Um, uh, and also pest control, I think, is an acceptable form of hunting on the farm down south. My brother and I will also go out with our shotguns, with our tutu, and we'll shoot, you know, pests, animals like gray squirrels, rabbits, crows, jays, you know, uh, foxes. We'll go out with, uh, with our with our gamekeeper and do that. So, um, is there a limit to? You were in the Highlands. Is there a limit to how many stag or just deer overall that you can get in a season? Uh, I don't know if there is a specific limit. I think that there may very well be, depending on the sort of assumed population size of deer within the area of your yeah. estate or whatever. But typically on our estate, which is about 3,000 acres, we tend to shoot between 8 to 12 stags, male deer, a year, and between 15 to 25 um, hinds, female deer, wow. a year. That's so a lot. That's That's the range for us. Yeah. yeah a lot because i know what changes for every state here in the united states is different like ellis the guy i was hunting with he's from vermont and in vermont you get to kill one deer a season so there's no as an individual as an individual is there a cap once so many people do you have to report it you do yeah once you kill it you have to call it in and report it and you you buy tags before a season Mm -hmm. yeah that's what that's what you do with gators too you gotta you get a a lot of a certain amount of tags for for gator hunting Yeah. yeah do you figure they put out only the amount of tags that can be used or or is there a point at which you know every person can apply for a tag and then the thousandth one gets you know turned in and it's a good question allowed to anymore i don't know i think I mean, they probably have an idea of how many people are hunting, and I know they 
season by or year by year they they can change it like in north yeah. carolina you, they change it in the last few years so they have an idea they set they, the limit at one because i think they, they have an idea it on the front end. they have an idea yeah. of how many people are going to go out there so they set it at one you know but i think it just changes by you know however they determine what the population is and how many hunters there are well maybe we'll have to have the uh inaugural half and half club hunting trip soon bang bang i i really want to go hunting in north carolina um Never been before. It'll be great fun, I think. Would you want a bow? Have you ever tried bow? I've never shot a bow at yeah. an animal. No. Yeah. I think I'd want to do bow. Yeah. I don't know. It's yeah, I don't want to do bow if I'm going to do it. I've definitely terminated a few hay bales with a bow. So. <laughs> <laughs> they have so much power, but but yeah. I don't know. It's this different hunting. I think it's kind of what makes hunting fun, and I never really knew about much about it growing up, but you know, different kinds of hunting. I think it's fun. Yeah. Even though I haven't done it. Uh, ESG. Yeah. It's in the game. <laughs> what? That no one else? Good. That was good. That, that was, was good. good. I like that. that. Are we using that? Yeah, yeah we're, we're going to use that. All right. ESG. We're in the game. It's in the game. Richie, t- tell us what the heck ESG is. What, what's it stand for? What's What's the E? What's the S? What's the G? Uh, so... ESG stands for environmental, no. social, and governance. Um, they Those three things represent, I think, typically the three main pillars or topic areas that companies are expected to report on nowadays, um, or more so nowadays. Um, you can think about it like companies have you know, financial risks and opportunities that need to be aware of in their day-to-day activities. And ESG covers all the non-financial risks and opportunities that companies need to be aware of um, in their operations. Um, so, so could you give us a, like some practical examples then of what each might be? Like if, if I am a big bank, for example, mm. how does the environment piece relate to me? And if I'm Google... How does the environmental piece relate to me? Yeah, sure. So um, if I'm a bank or a financial institution, obviously um, they're going to relate to you in different ways. And that relation we call materiality. Um, So depending on your business, what industry, sector you're in, how you operate, not every aspect that falls under ESG will be material to, to you, your business, or applicable to you. Um, but for a bank, um, let's say a sort of large financial institution uh, within the United States or Europe or else, wherever elsewhere, E, environmental, typically will be around sustainable finance, sort of climate, um, climate risk, renewable energy, um, uh, your own operational footprint of your business, Um how much energy you consume, electricity you consume, how many emissions you're putting into the atmosphere every day. Um, those those are typically the larger environmental areas that you need to consider. Um, G is all about governance, um, stuff you know around responsible business, governance frameworks, structures, committees. Um, you look at risk management for second, third lines of defense, both enterprise climate risk management, stakeholder engagement, ethics, you know, business conduct, continuity, teammate training, um, compliance, stuff like anti-money laundering, fraud, those kinds of things. And you go into the tech 
privacy cyber side of it, where you're looking at client, consumer, teammate privacy, um, cybersecurity threats, um, data management, um, information security. Um, uh, then if you go into sort of the social side of things, you're looking at areas like um, clients, community, financial inclusion, teammates, suppliers. Um, so clients will be, you know, if you're a bank, you know, what products and services are you offering? How are they um, affordable? How are they accessible to diverse communities and geographies? Um, you know, are they are they digital? You know, what's their online presence? You know, fair lending, integrated relationship management, how are you interconnecting the different lines of business in your bank to be available to all of your clients? Um, community banking, small business banking, um, uh, historically black, you know, colleges, universities, um, uh, financial inclusion, I mean, that's sort of self-explanatory. Um, uh, community grants, loans, investments, all of the above to diverse organizations across the country. You're looking at volunteerism, philanthropy, um, uh, all those kinds of things. Community and re reinvestment, affordable housing, um, supplier, supplier diversity. You have to look across your whole value chain of operations and you have to consider everything. Um, and I mean, I think, as I've just explained all those things, it's an incredible amount of information. Like ESG is a seriously large umbrella and I think that's the main reason why it's become so controversial because you are wrapping up so many things underneath this one acronym. You, of course, you're going to have disagreements, political disagreements, you know, disagreements across all your stakeholders about how influential these things need to be. And if there are so many things wrapped up underneath one umbrella, then that umbrella is that term is going to become very divisive. And, you know, that's that's why a lot of this mm. sort of anti ESG and all these other things are happening. So now I, I think to an outsider looking in who isn't doesn't doesn't deal with. ESG on their day to day isn't super familiar, you know, maybe knows what two of the three letters mean, or maybe they've heard them all, but it's never really materialized itself in their day to day. I think it's, it's pretty common to think of ESG as here's this part of our business that we're going to include to try to save the planet, you know, or to, to try to um, promote diversity in our executive management. And a lot of those terms you rattled off just now sound a, a lot just like good ways to run a business regardless of the impact maybe they make on the environment. Uh, you mentioned things like how teams work with each other in, in part of the social piece. I, I'm I'm just trying to get a feel for how much how much of it is kind of the perception that people see of it versus how much of ESG is um, you know truly just best practice for mm. governing uh, any any kind of business. Yeah, well, I mean, like anything, you know, you the things you hear about in news, you know, from particular individuals are the most controversial aspects, a lot of the negative aspects, you know, negative bias, all these things. Um, and those are things, the most controversial areas are things like, you know, climate, you know, um, uh, DEI, you know, inclusion, mm -hmm. that sort of stuff. Um, uh, executive compensation, 
you know, all these kind of more triggering areas. Uh, but really, the way I think about ESG is, I mean, I've, I'd much rather just call it corporate responsibility um, because the way I think about it is just, you know, it sort of covers every way in which a business can be responsible with its activities, how it operates, the communities it operates within, how it can give back, um, how it can be mindful of, um, you know, the business that it's doing, how is that impacting other areas, whether it's other people, whether it's, you know, land, um, the environment, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, uh, so all of this stuff that you're speaking of, this is a large footprint, as you mentioned, and, and Dom's looking up, you know, which companies had like, you know, um, the best ESG score or, you know, was rated the highest. How do you, how do you measure this? How can someone measure this in, in like layman's terms? Um, yeah. So, if you if you really wanted to measure it, I think one of the best ways to do that would be, you know, scoring, like mm-hmm. you said. Yeah. Um, I think that's one of the more standardized things. And I, I say standardized, it's, there's a long way to go for it to be properly standardized and efforts are being made mm-hmm. in that right now. But um, uh, one of the big things investors look at to determine uh, which companies are doing better within these areas and others is... Um, scores that rating and ranking agencies put out. An example of a couple of agencies would be um, uh, MSCI, that's one, um, uh, ISS, uh, S&P Global. Um, I Refinitiv has one. Yeah. Um, Basically every and, data and, platform I feel like has one yeah. really because it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be qualified to have an ESG score rubric. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so and and all these different scores, they have their own methodologies. Obviously, everyone overlaps a lot, but typically they will have their own set of criteria and methodologies that weight the criteria differently Mm. across all the pillars and they will pump out different scores. Um, So, for example, MSCI, they score you on a lettered score, you know, where AA is best and you know, DD or whatever is worst. And then Sustainalytics is a risk rating. So actually the lower your score in Sustainalytics, the better, because that means the more proactive you've been about your governance around all these ESG issues. So they think you're less of a risk to unexpected environmental, social things that could happen, disasters, whatever. Um, And so, yeah, it's just all, it's about collecting. It's about being transparent, your business being transparent with how you're responding to these sort of environmental, social, government risks and opportunities that have arisen and how prepared you are for them to potentially affect your business um, now and in the future. And transparently demonstrating that progress will allow investors and other stakeholders to understand how much work you put into it. And so, you know, inherently the risk of your business operations going forward will be lower. Um, and I guess, you know, if they were to invest in you, then their returns would be more guaranteed, et cetera, um, over the long run. Um, but yeah, so that's typically how it is. I think mm. it, it, when you start to look at ESG really more centrally around risks and opportunities, then I think it becomes a bit clearer. Um, uh, instead of just 
set of individual things that you have to sort of upkeep as the you know sort of um, right. climate is changing and, and pe what peers are doing okay so obviously there's a scoring system and whenever you have a scoring system there's going to be rankings alex has you know pulled up some some rankings here where you know microsoft for example maybe on top how does that scoring and and what incentives do companies and corporations have to rank higher than their peers is it you know here's a gold star pat on the back you're doing something great or are there real impacts to their business as well that would incentivize them to outperform their peer set um i, I don't think there's really any um you know the only th the only impact truly the only impact you're really looking at here is reputation reputational risk hmm. um external impact um Internally, it all depends on on what you set yourself. I mean, obviously, so ESG right now is pretty much entirely all voluntary. Nothing is required. It's not like financial reporting where you have you know rules and regulations in place under law that you have to abide by, and um, that's coming in the ESG space, which is why so much of this is being improved because the SEC has got looming climate disclosure rules that they're pushing down and. Um, you know, in Europe and other places across the world are further along in implementing um, mandatory regulatory processes that you have to abide by. Um, you know, in the next decade, you're going to see in the 10K and 10Qs environmental data, etc., published in there alongside financial information. Um, but um, uh, going back to rating and ranking, it's really all about how you set your goals internally so where do you want to be do you want to be a leader in the space do you want to be just in parity with your peers you know no one wants to be a laggard you know really but um so that's really what you set your goal you set you know i think a lot of um people would be happy with just being in parity with their peers constantly consuming knowledge about changing environment of ESG, staying aligned with similar organizations within your industry, within your sector. Um, and also one of the reasons that scores are important, at least for banks and the bank I work at, is that um, it's it's what helps tie, um, you know, executive compensation to this stuff, you know, because it's sort of like a mm. semi-standardized scoring that you can tie things to, mm. like executive compensation that looks at um, you know performance in these non-financial areas as ways to affect your um, sort of pay, etc. Um, so that's so when I reason. when I see these lists of companies that are at the you know the top ranking of ESG, I, part of me just thinks you know they can afford to do it. I feel like companies that are really trying to grow and you know maybe aren't as established as these. ESG could get in the way of profits and them growing to a, a point to where they can become as notorious as these companies. So at what point does ESG kind of hurt productivity and growth? Yeah, well, I mean, I could say from from what I read about this is a big this is a big conversation in politics around like international communities and emerging communities is that a lot of these emerging countries need to rely on like more affordable you know, fuels and whatever to, in order to go through like their industrial revolution, like we did that, that's what some people argue. Mm -hmm. and, and when we're making a lot of these international agreements to cut carbon emissions by a certain amount, 
it, a lot of these smaller countries don't sign on because it's giving them a disadvantage potentially to growing to the to the scale we did. Like we already we already went through that phase, and now we can try to focus on clean, but others can't necessarily. Mm. It, it doesn't, you know. Some some people say, "Oh, why don't they go all to clean energy?" But like you said, cost is still higher. So uh, well, that's just some international. That's just from from what I've learned right now. You know, like I could just see that being you know an obstacle, but maybe there's there's probably some factors I, I'm not thinking of or, or or whatnot. But I could just see that being a problem, and I don't know if I'm thinking of that incorrectly or, or what. No, it's, but. it's it's definitely a problem. Um, like with anything, um, you know, how much money you have, how large your business is, you know, that limits you to what resources you, you can apply to areas like ESG and progressing mm -hmm. that forward. Um, what I would say to that is really that's where I think the, f the, f the financial sector can come into play because you can partner with banks and investment firms, lenders who can meet you where you are on your decarbonization strategy or whatever, um, you know, who can help you progress your business, um, uh, help, you know, you become more sort of climate friendly in your operations, improve your products and services, um, and really meet you where you are. Um, so yeah, I, th I think that's interesting. We, we pulling up here. How Sorry. So I was just trying to pull up the, uh, ESG disclosures that we were talking about the sec coming up with. Um, I think we should talk about these a little bit because I think they're, there's a lot to it, but while I'm looking for this, my question for you is, um, so how a lot of these companies are voluntarily sharing this information. So, and I, I, I actually don't know exactly what your role is with kind of how you do this day to day, but are you, are, are people auditing all of these numbers? Is there a requirement to be audited to do like, per, you know, report ESG numbers? Are they calculated internally or does that have to be a second party review or like what's, um, yeah, so I obviously, I, I work for a bank, I have insight into my process, but um, I can talk about that. There are certainly audits and reviews in place, but I mean, all of that is determined internally by us and how much we want yeah. to process it. Nothing is mandated externally. Um, we, like a lot of companies, will want to make sure that before we publish anything externally, we want it to be accurate and factually correct and complete. So, um, yeah, we go through numerous review stages with, you know, SMEs, um, review teams, legal compliance, um, various management executive level committees, ethics committees, disclosure committees, board reviews, you know, the whole shebang. Um, that report will be looked at many, many, many times before it goes out. Um, and is published. So, um, yeah, it's definitely, um, uh, yeah, that definitely happens. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of my main roles. I, I focus a lot on reporting. Um, mm. so, uh, in going back to your question, sorry, Ryan, as well, another thought I had is, is, um, you know, the role that money plays and how big your business is, mm -hmm. et cetera. Reporting is another one of those things. And so mm. as um, agencies are looking and, and companies are looking to standardize reporting and make it mandatory, you know, they have to keep that in mind and they have to understand that companies 
do not have the financial and human resources to find this data, sort through it and report it. And so you have to keep that in mind when you are making certain things required and you have to give companies large enough time frames to get their shit together to figure out where this data is coming from, how they can pass through it and then disclose on it. So um, interesting. If you if you were to look, so the main bodies looking at this work are um, ISSB or uh, IFRS, uh, International Financial. Oh God, I can't remember what it's reporting standards. Board, but, um, ISSB is International Sustainability Standards yeah, Board, yeah. Um, and they've just released a set of um, uh, reporting uh, sort of rules guidance um, uh, that looks specifically at climate but then also general sustainability information and you know they've staggered it to where you know it's going to start in 2024 but you don't have to report until 2025 and when you do report in 2025 looking back on 24 fiscal year you're only, ha only going to have to do that for certain climate related data and then as the years go on then the more you're going to have to report um, and it just gives companies time to adjust given their various levels of resources that they have available to them yeah. Did you have anything specific on? Uh, nothing specific. I pulled up the the rules. Uh, but like I think just to state, I think it said what well, it's. They're pretty broad right now. It looks like from what the SEC is saying out there, like greenhouse gas emissions. You have to you have to specifically share that information, climate related financial statement metrics. Um, so that's pretty broad. I thought it'd be a little bit more like. Um, I know there's one rule out there that's going to be i think that's been causing a lot of commotion is like you have to have like a diversity hire on your board or something so mm -hmm. there's been some backlash on that i i don't wanna i don't remember exactly what that pertained to but um well i think these sec rules are climate focused really. these are climate focused yeah, yeah 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 so i was thinking more esg broader yeah richie Oh, never mind. Dummy go. Uh, I was going to say, so Richard, we've we've gotten pretty dense into some of the the finer points here of, of ESG and and what all it entails. Um, and obviously, you work in the space. What I'm kind of interested to hear about is what are the elements of either your job specifically or just ESG uh, in general that kind of excite you and that you feel you know make make an impact on you know, the world and making either your business or, um, you know, just the corporate environment in general a, a better place? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, I, growing up, came from a very sciencey background, a lot of biology, a lot of wildlife, nature. I loved every aspect of that. That was actually your undergraduate degree as well, right? Yeah, my undergrad degree was biology. Oh, really? um, oh. I did biology for A-level as well as geography, geology. I was very sciencey, environmental-minded. Um, and I did, I minored in entrepreneurship and environmental science in college as well. And then I did a master's degree in, in, uh, business management. Um, there was a kind of a point where I realized that I, I didn't really want to go into biology specifically. I didn't want to become a doctor. I didn't want to go into medicine. I didn't want to be a vet. Um, um, you know, I, I, I think maybe in another life or maybe still in my own life, I would, you know, go off and try and be, uh, I don't know, like a safari guide or, or some, you know, wildlife TV personality. Or the next David Attenborough, I think it was always what I dreamed of doing. But um, 
yeah so when i started to get into business in school then i realized that there's a really good opportunity for me here to focus my career on all of my nature related passions uh within the business sector um and to because you know sort of my general very high level thought was what makes stuff happen in this world is money right it's mm -hmm. where you can direct capital it's where mm. you can um you know put money towards initiatives that make a difference to the environment and the best place to do that is at a bank or a large financial institution where you can influence the direction of that capital towards sustainable initiatives and other areas and nature related areas that that you think um you know need you know capital put towards them and so yeah that's kind of why i started to have an interest in um the role i do now within esg um and um i think the next step for me is trying to find a way towards sustainable finance sustainable investing um right now i'm more kind of in the strategic kind of you know reporting internal side of it i'm not client facing i'm not involved in um deals um or anything so um yeah I, I, that's sort of that's sort of the track i i took and so the the term the term sustainable finance there unpack that for us a little bit what, what does that actually mean so i'm gonna reference some some notes here to make sure i'm financially wow, most prepared uh, what a beast um, richie is by far the most prepared guest uh, on the <laughs> half and half yeah. podcast today yeah so i mean i don't know it's it's a big interest of mine it's not something i have any really real experience in um so i can't tell you too much about it but um you know sustainable finances is really just um you know investing directed towards esg things um, you know, it's it's becoming more uh, value-minded in terms of where you direct your capital. Um, uh, so yeah, I mean that's it's that at its basic terms, that's that's sort so of. So there's there's a couple of situations that I've seen um, play out in recent times that I wonder would I wonder if these would fall under that sustainable finance umbrella. Um, one that I've seen is uh, in investment managers putting together funds, ESG funds, I guess you could call it, where all of the, or, or, or an index of sorts, where all of the companies within that fund meet a certain level of ESG criteria. So, and I, I do kind of think that that's a little bit of the future of how ESG drives values, drives value for these companies, because the more and more uh, individual and institutional investors start caring about, I guess, I guess generally doing better for the world and, and, and realizing these ESG scores as um, you know, metrics that reflect that in, in companies, the more they're gonna wanna direct their capital towards uh, you know, companies that, that hold those values and that score well on those metrics. I guess that's that's number one of of how I think sustainable finance might play out and mm -hmm. and sort of the relationship there between how does your ESG score actually impact your ability to you know finance your company and your objectives. Um, 
I'll, I'll actually pause on that one because yeah. I'm, I'm wondering if uh, any of you guys have thoughts there. What are your thoughts? That was that was packed. I, 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 <laughs> I kind of lost it after a second. I don't know. I think um, there's a reason why there's a, a greenwash. There's a conversation around greenwash right now. Okay. Because there's been a lot of a lot of these green sustainable bond, um, funds. Um, I've, the one I have on the screen here is like the green bond ETF. Like, okay. Um, a lot of them have good intentions, and I think now have become a marketing ploy, in my opinion, from what I've seen. Because there's so many, and like we just saw, like Mastercard was like the number one like green ESG company, which they probably have some really good metrics and stuff, and they obviously earn their rating. But like some some of the a lot of what we call as green might not like really be considered green, or I'm using the word green, but it's like ESG as a whole. So my point is, I there's a lot of funds out there that advertise as their ESG, and they're just not. And that's called a greenwashing, and that's been a big issue right now. Yeah, so so Microsoft is number one up there. I mean, we all know it, Gates is, just paid for that one, right? Is it is it kind of <laughs> is it kind of just like I, I feel every company now is saying we're going to be right carbon neutral by twenty fifty. Yeah, but the, but yeah. if you look at what they're actually doing towards it, you know they're not making any right. real progress right. towards right. it. It's kind of a it's a buzzword, and it's you know look at us, we're doing good things for the environment. We're using it as a marketing tool to get our reputation. Yeah, there. and I think Richie, like, what probably would be really good at is, and just from the private side of things, like, we do due diligence, and we do, um, there's a rubric of, like, ESG stuff that we, they have to follow, so from that aspect, you can say, like, that you can't get, you can't BS to us, like, that you're yes, doing ESG-related we- initiatives, but you're not getting away with it. Problem is, with these funds, they're just investing in stocks that are rated high on ESG scales, and you know what I mean? It's not well, like well, maybe I don't know what you mean though, because if they're rated high on the ESG scales, they've obviously, you know, accomplished the objectives that lead to those metrics that give them the high score. Right. So by by investing in that, are you not therefore? But I mean, it's I feel like ESG is so. I mean, just from outside looking in, ESG is so young still. Like, are those metrics like as accurate as? They're, they're claiming the to be have, at this point. They're the best we have right now. And right. Gonna, but as those adjust and improve, will these numbers be adjusted because of it? And will a good investment now look like a bad investment later because of it? I don't, that's a, I don't think a, so. I, I think it's know. really important that money flows in now. I just think it's ESG not. ESG metrics because it, so say, say you put this ESG fund together, right? And you mm-hmm. say, here's, you know, all the, all the companies that we're investing in that meet these metrics and, Everyone's like, uh, I'm not biting, right? Do you think those ESG metrics ever develop? Do you think they ever um, become more evolved and, and more in line with what actually drives ESG? I mean, but do you really think your funds in MasterCard or Microsoft are going towards like ESG initiatives? No, I don't think that at all. I, I, I think that the sheer fact that people invested and, and corporations can see that people want to flow money into call it green capital makes those objectives all the more important to them because they say here is an actual tangible way for me to increase the value of my business through these objectives so i think the more money that flows in even if the even if the metrics are still at their rudimentary stages right now and you can recognize that and ryan to your point maybe you know investing today in a company that meets these these esg standards that are you know, a little bit 
BS or maybe they're kind of cutting corners to just meet the metric and they're not actually doing what they should be doing to actually Mm -hmm. promote environmental social Mm -hmm. governance. Um, I I think if, if there's not investment there, those things never develop and it it essentially never gets better. The, the, the second piece that I wanted to talk about that I think could play into sustainable finance. Um, I work in the, in the real estate space, specifically multifamily and we have, um, government sponsored entities that provide lending to multifamily Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac and, and HUD. And there are green loans that are offered whereby if you take a property that was built, you know, maybe 20, 30 years ago, um, you can get financing at more attractive rates if you, uh, agree to implement, you know, maybe you, you put, you know, low flush toilets. Energy in, efficiency. In all, in all right. yeah, yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, you convert yeah. the building to be energy efficient. Yeah. And I see that as being something that's structured into uh, sustainable finance. And maybe people, you know, raise funds to say, we're going we're gonna to lend to this sort of asset class. But a, a requirement of our lending is going to be that, you know, we leave these buildings more green. And I could see that attracting a lot of money from a lot of people because it, it kind of aligns... Uh, investor objectives with, you know, um, social. And, so and I got a question here. Tell, tell me if I'm wrong, but isn't it kind of ironic that ESG is set up to make companies, you know, more responsible in the way they go about business and at some point could hinder profits. But it, it, when you're looking at like ETFs like this, you're almost turning it into a business itself. So, companies who are putting are rich enough to put money into ESG can therefore show that they have good metrics on ESG and make more money because of it. Like, I don't know. I feel like profiting off of ESG is the opposite of what it's put in place to do. I don't, I, does that make sense? I think I'd take a completely contrarian view to that. I don't, I, I just don't completely contrarian. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't see, uh, that, I don't see how well, I mean, this makes how, any sense. But I mean, how, how is ESG ever going to be successful if you can't profit? I don't think ESG be, should be. It, it's a, all about becoming more sustainable. Itself. It's all about becoming right. more sustainable. Right. I think it should so be like a segment, like a legal segment of like a legal department of a company. I think it should be like a department of a company being like, okay, hey, you know, I see we're making strides in this, but you know, let's let's take the maybe a better way of approaching this. I feel like it should be a department, not a not a way to make money itself. I feel like it's contrary well, to what I, it's put in place to do. How is it a bad thing if it's a way to make money? So look at it, look at it this way. I think it's it's actually a, a great thing that the biggest companies in the world have the most resources dedic- to dedicate to it because they probably have the most impact. I mean, if we get five or six mom and pops to implement ESG standards, that makes a relatively small footprint. Let, let, let's drill into a very specific piece of, of ESG. And Richard, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but... One impact you might look at is where your office buildings are situated and where your employees live in relation to those office buildings and, and how much um, how much uh, emissions they use to commute into your building. And that, that might have some kind of impact on your decision of, do we want to be hybrid? Do we want to be all in office? I don't know how material that falls on the scale, but that's, that's the example we're going to use. Now, 
if I can get five mom and pops to work from home two days a week to, to limit those emissions, that's not making a very big difference. But if I can get Microsoft to work from home two days a week, oh, yeah. of thousands I understand of employees, that. Yeah. and there's a mutual benefit to where they can see, I can also use this for marketing and, you know, drive, um, investment into my company. I think it's a win-win. Mm, I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. I wasn't necessarily going against it. I was just like, from from my perspective and hearing all this, that's what it led me to like believe. That's what it led me to see. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I think you know you have the three legged stool concept, right? Where you have people, planet, and profit mm-hmm. making up those three components. Ideally, a situation is you can find yourself a deal that number one is profitable, number two is sustainable, and doesn't have severely adverse impacts on the climate because we've considered the risks and opportunities there Mm. and also benefits the community um you know so that's really what we're looking for it's just instead of being single-minded on profit 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 now we're saying let's start to identify opportunities for deals where not only can we make a profit okay maybe in every situation it's not going to be as you know, hugely profitable as if we were to completely ignore planet and mm-hmm. people, but, you know, you're still going to make money. Um, no, that makes sense. So that's yeah. that's really how I look at it at a very high level. What, um, what, um, what cut would you take from regular profitability, which then the shareholders would potentially bear? Would you, what would you be comfortable with if you were going for profitable, or sorry, ESG or not ESG project? What cut in profitability would you be willing to take if you went from ESG to non-ESG? Well, I mean, I, I don't know if... I mean, I certainly can't answer that question, provide a definitive number, but I mean, I... But I just idea, I like, but, like, are you saying I'm willing to, like, but I think even it's, it's your not always, portfolio? But you also got to, like, ESG deals aren't always less profitable than non-ESG. Like, you know, you can identify deals that are Well, for you to implement... Well, I see your, I see your point. You can do both. But... There's very, very few instances where ESG does come at a cost, whether it's time and resources or um, investing in more expensive materials or like there's not one thing that ESG is cheaper that I know of, right? Like, But so does everything. I mean, if you're expanding into a new business, if you're, you know... Well, okay, well, here, like, here's an example, right? If, if, um, if you're starting a closed company and, you know, you could use outsourced labor or you could use U.S. labor... Um, but U.S. labor is th- maybe 30% more expensive. Are you willing to take on the U.S. labor instead of the potentially not as great labor overseas? Yeah. I, I Can I say something on this real quick? Yeah, so I think it'd be attractive as an investor to – I get what you're saying, but like I get what Richie's saying is the whole idea is not to maximize profits like quarter by quarter, year by year, but I think it'd be very attractive as an investor to see that it's a well-rounded business and yes, maybe they're not trying to maximize my investment and you know, make me money quarter by quarter, year by year, but it's going to be a very, they're going to steadily do it. Maybe not maximize it as much as they could by going the cheap route or outsourcing it to something a lot cheaper, but they're doing it in a sustainable way and they're still growing regardless of that. Like, I think that's very attractive and shows that it's a strong company. I, I, I do wonder, and I actually kind of like. Did that make your, sense? I don't know if it, it, yeah, yeah. it, it, it did. Sense. It did. I I do wonder. I I kind of like Alex's example here of of a situation where you can either 
you know, maybe manufacture in China or manufacture in the USA? And what price cut are you willing to take? Because I think that's one that, you know, regardless of your knowledge of ESG, you can, it, it hits close to home for, yeah. for everybody. And I think the business decision there comes on a couple fronts. One, is there a big difference in quality of my product? And two, how much do people value that made in USA sticker? And mm-hmm. I think it comes back to the same thing with ESG is how much do people, investors, consumers value doing good in the world? And here's, here's, here's what I see is that when times are good and people have food on the table and they're, they're happy, that becomes the thing that you really want to pursue. But when times get tough... I'm going to Walmart and I'm buying the product that comes from China. Right. So that's That's a good point. And and I I don't know, I'll, I'll I'll throw that out there. Richie, if you have any thoughts as well, like kind of what, what challenges do you see if we're, you know, maybe a lot of talk, a lot of uncertainty is if we go into a recession, you know, what kind of challenges do you see in your business and, and being able to get attention to your kind of group's objectives to the extent that times get really bad? It's a loaded question. It's a tough one. I, I certainly don't want to know, but yeah, I'm not really sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'll turn it back to you. I, I don't know if I, <laughs> if I, don't know if I really have an answer. I, uh, I don't know. That's but that's that's what I'm. That's and that's the only thing I bring up is that it's it's definitely a more. We've been had it so good for so long, right? And and we always talk about ESG and everyone's talks how fluffy it is. But then when people get down to the nitty gritty of a lot of this stuff, people aren't willing to put their money where their mouth is. And I, I try to pull up an easy chart somewhere, but there's absolutely no correlation between ESG like investments, which maybe is a good thing for our discussion saying, okay, you, a comp, you know, ESG investments could have the same payoff as non ESG investments. It could be seen as a positive thing, I would think, um, because you're being good and getting the same return. Uh, it used to be a little bit ESG ratings kept things a little lower, like you, you're Hmm. taking a 1% cut or something in return, but you can say, oh, I, I am proud of where my money went. Um, that's just something you have to, I guess every investor and every individual has to take into their own account. Well, well, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, ES, ESG is just, you know, you're, you're just considering risks and opportunities that could affect your business in the future. Mm-hmm. So the more you consider that, the more resources you put into understanding how that's going to affect your business you know, the lower, the more you're going to lower the risk associated with your business. And so, I mean, isn't that sort of how stocks work? The value of stocks go up and down based on how risky they are, how volatile they are. You know, if you want to put your money into a small, into tobacco, small entrepreneurial startup, you know, the risk is going to be a lot higher because you don't understand what's going to happen to that business. Um, but your profits are going to, your returns are going to be great. Um, vice versa, if you have a large company that, um, you know, is very secure, very low risk. Stock price is going to be lower. Um, your returns aren't going to be as great. But, um, but it's just uh, it just comes down to individual preference. It, um, I think that's a really good point on the risks and opportunities thing because I think that's I think that's where the key is. But I think the issue is where it gets to like um, your risk. If you're an oil company, your risk is that like the government comes to shut down your pipeline. Like I think that's, and that's obviously a risk and opportunity, but I think that's where people get freaked out by ESG because the more we push 
this, which, you know, maybe people are pro or not, but, you know, it does impact a lot of our our business. Yeah, well, I mean, like with with any topic, there are extremes, right? I mean, so many topics nowadays are divisive, you know, um, because there are extremes. You know, you have people who are fundamentalists on one side and people who are the complete opposite on the other. And the same, same is happening with ESG and how it's impacting people. You have individuals like, you know, the crazy environmental group Stop Oil or Just Stop Oil or whatever they are, you know, people who want us to draw a line in the sand now, completely shut down our infrastructure and yeah. transition to some, um, you know, fantastical renewable infrastructure that supposedly is there, you know, and suddenly if we stop all oil production, we're going to function normally now because, you know, we have all these renewable assets, blah, blah, blah. But that's not true. Like, it's never going to happen. Um, you know, it took us a hundred years of, you know, sort of industrial revolution to build up to where we are now. It's going to take time to transition to a point where we can become more sustainable um, as a society, you know, across our industries and across our sectors. It's going to take different industries and different sectors, different amounts of time. And so it's all about leveraging the resources we have now to meet companies within these different industries, within different companies, um, where they are and understand what they need to progress to a future state where we can, you know, hopefully become sustainable in our operations and reduce global warming and stabilize the climate. Um, it's not like you can't think in extremes. You can't want things to happen quickly and happen now because there's going to mm-hmm. be pushback. There's going to be anti-movements which have happened. You know, it's 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 about finding that middle ground to act um, in a balanced fashion, you know. Um, uh, well said. That's that's well sort said. of what I think. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, and this has been a great learning opportunity for me. I definitely see how the evolution of ESG can help companies stick out um, in a way that'll help them grow. I really do. Um, whereas before, I was asking questions because you know I was confused on a few things, but I think. Um, I definitely see the positives of it, the challenges of it, um, but I do think that it'll help um, companies stick out, especially ones that are wanting to make a difference. I I do have one piece that I'd like to tack on to the end of this discussion. I know we're running a little bit, okay. we're running a bit a little bit long, but I think we've had some good conversation here. Yeah, I I do feel that we've focused a lot, and at least my mind has been a lot more on the environmental side of. ESG, and I think that's probably where a lot of the financial trade-off comes into play as well, and, and probably why our conversation drifted towards there. But I do think that it's worth noting that not all components of ESG really have a direct financial, um, you know, cost or, or or benefit associated with them, and and the the piece that. I think is important too is you know building diversity that that social piece or maybe it falls into the governance piece I'm not I'm not quite sure but you know diversity in leadership and having and promoting you know different views and opinions mm-hmm. I I guess how much of how much of your work is focused on that piece Richie versus the environmental piece yeah, I mean, I'm the work that I do is focused across all three pillars. 
um, you know, I'm responsible for um, understanding the impact we have across all the criteria within ESG and sort of bringing that together and into, you know, a report that sort of tells all of our stakeholders about the work that we're doing and the impact we're having for the environment, for our communities, for our clients, for our teammates, etc. How we're managing those risks and opportunities through our governance frameworks. So yeah, it's it's everything. Um, but um, yeah, I agree with you that the social and governance side of it is important as well. And you have areas like diversity, equity, inclusion that are controversial. Um, uh, yeah, so um, it's it's difficult. I mean, it's I think you know when you look at recruitment, hiring. Um, you know, not everyone is equal. And so you have to provide opportunity to people whose responsibility that is, first and foremost, is a great question. You know, is it first and foremost, is it the employers? Is it um, local governments, schools, access to early education? You know, there are so many different components to it. But I mean, I, you know, at least the way I've grown up and the way I see it at a basic level is, you know, you're hired for a job based on your ability to do that job. That's like the first and foremost thing, right? Um, uh, you know, you as an individual have a story that speaks to your character, speaks to the challenges you face and you've overcome through your life, speaks to your work ethic, your drive, your determination. I think all of those things should be considered because you know we individually are all well-rounded people um, that make us great for a job. You know, I think when you think about it, a lot of positions, a lot of hires that happen, um, a lot of managers aren't necessarily looking for a candidate who ticks all those boxes. You know, like you got the right education, you have exactly the skills and qualifications we need to do this job. Obviously, it depends on the role you're fulfilling. But for the most part, I think, or a lot of circumstances, if you have two candidates in front of you, one is an asshole but has all the qualifications. You you know you'd hate working with this person. Uh, the other one is really great. You get along with them. They're a wonderful person. They have a lot of good qualities. Perhaps their qualifications experience are a bit lacking, but you know you learn on the job. I think you're always going to choose that second person. So, um, yeah, I mean, there's so much to it, but... Uh, yeah, whether companies should be saying, look, regardless of ability, regardless of anything else, we have to have a certain number of people from a specific ethnicity in a certain executive leadership group or a specific gender or race or, you know, sexual orientation or whatever. I don't know. I, I don't know if that's if that's the right thing to do. Um, I don't think it is. But I mean, I. I don't know. There's so much to it, but yeah, yeah it's wild. Well said. All right. Yeah. Well said. I, this next part, I'm gonna we're gonna put it on the the first half. But I gotta ask. Okay. <laughs> you said you see yourself in this life or another as a da David Attenborough type, <laughs> a Nat Geo show featuring you. What's it about? Oh gosh. Um, I don't know. I, I guess it would have to be around something that I know more about, which is like animal behavior and wildlife from where I came from back home in England and Scotland. Um, something to do with that. 
I don't know. Um, mm. I was really they, hoping for Richie mm. with some koalas. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think they have those in, in London parts or yeah. the highlands of Scotland. Yeah. No, I still think about it today, you know, whether I want to, you know, spend my life out in nature, wildlife, whether it's behind a camera or, I don't know, doing lots of stuff. But I think I'd love it. I know I'd love it. But I also have other priorities in my life that, you know, are more financially inclined, I think, and, and finding a way where... I can marry those two um, goals that I have together, then, you know, I, I think, at least I hope, this route that I'm going down of blending bio and mm. science and environmental with business and banking and, you know, directing capital, I'm, I'm hoping to find a really happy middle ground somewhere along the line, but who knows? You'll find your way there. I don't know where You'll I, find I, I don't know where I want where I'm going to end up. Who knows? We got to get one more sound bite okay. from Richie. Before, before we have him off the pod. Okay. Richie, can you describe how your experience on the pod has been, <laughs> but in your Scottish accent? <laughs> <laughs> we got to get those Scottish uh, numbers up. Got to get the Scottish in here. Come on, let's we don't have, have anyone it. from have Scotland it. yet. Oh, let's hear it. Um, right, lads. Uh, this podcast has been absolutely fantastic. The Half and Half oh. podcast. I, I, I don't know what to tell you, lad. It's been... It's been amazing, just <laughs> from from the start to finish. Yeah, it's been incredible. 